0: If you're like me, then you use your credit cards for everything, to keep your finances in order and to benefit from all those rewards programs. But it turns out that the average person misses out on $300 worth of rewards every year simply because they're not using the right cards. But a new app called Birch helps you get the most out of your cards and earn the rewards you deserve. Just connect your debit and credit cards securely, and Birch will actively track your rewards programs and show you how to use them the right way, even in real time before you buy. It also analyzes your transactions and recommends cards that will earn you more based on the way you spend. Download Birch, B-I-R-C-H, in the App Store and sign up for free today. And now... Welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ideas from the CBC, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Freakonomics Radio, and The Ezra Klein Show.
1: The period we're approaching is being compared to the first industrial revolution in terms of its disruptive ability. Do you think that's a fair
2: depiction? Sure. That's maybe even in some cases more so. I mean... uh, the first industrial revolution was about steam power, and it was about machines that uh, essentially displaced muscles, you know, that, that took over manual labor. Now we're having what you might call a, a kind of cognitive computing revolution where machines are taking on brain power. They're taking on that cognitive capability. And, you know, you can ask the question, well, we've had these revolutions in the past. Why does everyone still have a job? You know, why why don't we have unemployment already? And the reason is that people have this unique skill to think, to solve problems, and to learn. And that's what's allowed people to stay ahead of that march of technology. Um You can compare it to horses, for example. Horses got displaced, right? I mean, horses have kind of lost their economic role in the economy. And the reason is the horses could not adapt in the way that people do. But now technology is finally beginning to move into that final frontier as well. So... You've now got these thinking, learning computers that are going to begin to compete with people in that primary capability that so far has allowed us to stay ahead of all of this. And so that's why I think, and I think a lot of other people think, although there's not general agreement, on it, I think that this could be the biggest disruption we've seen yet in terms of, you know, what it all means for jobs and the economy and society.
1: So humans could go the way of the horse. That's a sobering thought.
2: Yeah, that's, I think, a possibility. And, and the reason is that the machines are, are coming after that thing that makes us so very different from horses, right? I mean, uh, you know, the, the difference between people and horses is that we can learn to do new things, we can adapt, but machines are, are going to be able to learn and adapt as well in the future.
1: Now, no one doubts that artificial intelligence, along with advanced robotics, 3D printing, and the Internet of Things will disrupt the labor market. It's just a question of how much. One influential study coming out of Oxford University estimated that 47% of jobs in the U.S. could be eliminated using existing technologies. Everything from fast food and retail jobs to legal and medical jobs are in the crosshairs. Where there is disagreement is whether new jobs will come along to replace the old ones. In the past, they have, and they eventually led to higher standards of living. But some people think that this time, it's different. Nick Sernick is a lecturer at King's College London and co-author of Inventing the Future.
3: I think this argument that history shows we always create new jobs, uh, it's a really common argument, and I I think they're right that history does show that, but I think there's a number of important caveats to that. Uh, The first one is when we look at sort of the initial wave of automation in the late 1800s or so, we do see jobs come about eventually to replace the lost jobs in agriculture, but they take about 40 years to arrive. So we have a period of about 40 years where there's mass poverty, there's a huge amount of slums within places like London, Uh, it's just not very good for workers. So in the medium term, I would expect maybe some jobs to arise, but this still doesn't sort of... um, get to the heart of the matter with you know short term what should we expect over the next decade or two the other aspect is these historical sort of precedents they also had a different social context and i think that's really important to note as well so when we look at say the early 1900s we have uh, machines taking jobs, but we also have a workers' movement which is aiming to reduce the working week. So this effectively means that yes, there's less work to be done, but everybody is sort of equally doing less work. So we've got a move from a 60-hour work week down to about a 40-hour work week in most places, and this effectively means that the impacts of automation aren't felt because we are reducing the working week. Now, when we look at post-World War II era. Again, we see automation taking jobs, but we also see high levels of employment, good wage growth, good productivity growth. But what's also happening there is that we have a unique situation in the history of capitalism where uh, we've got governments which are committed to a full employment policies. So they're doing all sorts of efforts to make sure that there are sufficient jobs for people. Uh, We've also got – uh, half of the population, women, now working in the home rather than in the, in the workplace. So this is, you know, half the population isn't looking for a job. The other aspect is, is that those periods of high economic growth were unique. Uh, we haven't seen them since, and I highly doubt that we're going to see them again. So when we look today, we're missing today. We're missing a movement for a shorter working week. We're missing a period of high growth. Uh, instead, we've got secular stagnation, and we're also missing uh, governments being committed to full employment policies. Uh, instead, most governments today are committed to austerity and cutting down government debt rather than trying to get uh, more and more jobs for people. So I think the sort of looking at history is is good, but I think we also need to take into account the fact that a lot of the things which enabled that no longer exist.
4: Well, yes, um, I do think it'll be different.
1: Robert McChesney is a professor of communications at the University of Illinois and co-author of People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy.
4: Most economists I've talked to, not all by any means, and I quote in and, and People Get Ready several who are really concerned, but most economists hold the position that, well, eventually, New technologies always come along. It's built right into capitalism, and they disrupt old industries, but they create new ones and create new jobs. And eventually, all's better. I mean, you know, 100 years ago, 90 percent of people were working in agriculture. 150 years ago, uh, and then they shifted to better jobs in manufacturing, and then they left manufacturing and go to service. And when service jobs get replaced, they'll move on to something that will come along to replace it. The market will always replace jobs that are lost. Uh, That's that's what history shows. And I think this time, though, it, it, the reliance on the market produce, magically producing good jobs uh, or decent jobs, uh, the evidence is really thin there. And this n- wouldn't necessarily be a problem for society if we had an economy that could adjust. And so the benefits of this technology were shared across the board and everyone got took advantage of it. But in the United States and in Canada and most capitalist economies, they're not really structured for this sort of revolution to be shared equitably. And, you know, that that's not just morally and ethically a problem and politically a problem for democracy. The great irony here, and this is why the problem will come to a head, is it's also a tremendous problem for capitalism because capitalism needs people to buy its products in order to have incentive to produce them. And that was really what happened in the Great Depression. People couldn't buy the products, so people stopped producing them. We had massive unemployment. Well, we're looking at a situation coming up uh, where our economy could well uh, return to that situation, where we're going to have... Not enough money to want to buy stuff that firms are going to produce it. And so instead of having this technological revolution lead to a bounty shared by all, making life vastly superior to what it had been across the board, uh, instead it could lead to a world in which we'd wish the computer had never been invented. <laughs>
5: Between 2010 and 2015, the average income between, uh, the average income difference between the top 20% and the bottom 20% of Americans, known as the rich-poor gap, grew from about $29,000 to over $189,000, according to Census Bureau data. And during that time, this divide widened in all 100 of the country's largest metro areas, as sort of pointed out by this chart and much of what you see here is because computers and robots are performing more and more new tasks this is something that we talked about frequently For, we've been talking about it for years, really, but the 2016 presidential candidates did not want to talk about it. Donald Trump still doesn't want to talk about it because of his sort of fake populist persona that can't and won't be backed up by actual policies to help the actual worker, as we extensively talked about on yesterday's program. This makes the work of specialized laborers more efficient, which makes the rich richer and stakeholders benefit from the efficiency by making the rich richer and mag uh when machines replace low skilled workers that makes the poor poorer so this trend is expected to continue there are a number of different factors right now that are increasing the uh, wealth gap the income and wealth gaps and donald trump's tax proposal would make that even worse uh we've we've talked about a lot of those issues but robots and automation are also going to be a factor it's expected to continue according to a recent study by price waterhouse coopers around 38% of american jobs could be at high risk of being replaced by automation by the early 2030s and depending on which study we looked at i mean i've i've told you about studies that say as high as uh, as many as half of all jobs um, are at risk of being automated away over the next 20 or 25 years. The most vulnerable industries are ones with low skill workers like retail, transportation storage manufacturing and this is putting a huge strain on americans in the lowest income brackets income growth in the u s is falling behind the costs of housing that go up and the costs of basic needs that are going up the labor department for example says that the average residential rental costs have gone up three point nine percent in just a year which is really a lot when you think about that on a year-over-year basis and not surprisingly four of the five cities with the biggest rich poor gap uh... increase were cities with thriving high-tech industries and if we take a look at that same graph from earlier san francisco san jose and silicon valley austin texas seattle washington and many of the cities that are high on the list like uh, bridgeport connecticut for example have low income workers that mostly work in the industries I mentioned that are most vulnerable to automation, retail manufacturing, etc. The gap between the super rich meaning the top five percent and the middle class uh, the middle twenty percent also grew considerably by nearly fifty nine thousand dollars, as this next graph sort of points out, and even the gap and, and this is this is one that may be surprising to you to some degree even the gap within the middle class has grown. The divide between households at the 30th and 80th percentiles increased by an average of $9,000. Coal is one of these industries that is being affected, which is why the war on coal uh, that Donald Trump talks about is non-existent and why trying to prop up the coal industry is actually not only is it pointless and aimless and bad for the environment it's also anti-capitalistic because the coal industry in the free market is increasingly a dying industry Automation is making college degrees more valuable. Educated people are needed to design and maintain the computer systems and the robots while there are fewer low-skilled jobs out there because of those computers and robots being developed by the skilled workers. So there are arguments to be made that automation is a good thing. Um, It'll free people up to do work that is more creative or analytical, but it's not as though all people that are in the truck driving industry or fry cooks will all of a sudden, once their jobs are automated away, become opera singers or philosophers or computer programmers. So I've said this before, I'll say it again. Automation is happening. Uh, if we are to successfully uh, synthesize the effects of automation, we're going to need a paradigm shift in terms of how we think of the relationship to work and it's clear that the Trump administration I mean its laughable to even consider whether the Trump administration might be equipped to deal with that but more broadly the political apparatus of the United States is not really equipped to deal with that Uh basic income is something that we're talking about more and more we know if you look historically the the progress of technology has not in any significant way been stopped because of the jobs that it was going to kill and the idea of replacing cars uh uh, replacing horse buggy drivers with cars wasn't going to be stopped because the buggy drivers were going to lose their jobs imagine if everything we've seen happen in the automotive industry never happened because we were just too worried that the horse buggy drivers were going to lose their jobs. So, I don't believe that resisting this is a logical path forward. I think that working with it makes a lot more sense and it it's going to be there's there's sort of at some point there's going to be a split and some would argue the split is already happening because of the drastic increase in wealth inequality that we're seeing. Either we are going to be prepared to take on this changing dynamic in a way that will improve society for everyone or for most people or wealth inequality will continue to explode. And the problems that we currently have as a result of that wealth inequality are going to get worse and worse and worse. And that's why we really need to be thinking about universal basic income. We need to be continuing to think about, and it's laughable given the conversation about healthcare that we have, but we need to be looking at disconnecting health insurance from employment, especially when machines replace your job. It, uh, it more acutely makes no sense to connect health insurance to employment. So I don't, think we're even close to ready to deal with these issues. I think a lot of people are still in in denial. Some of those people email me on a regular basis, but it's happening. It's coming and it's either going to get much, much worse. Or if we get together as a society and think about how to improve circumstances, things could get better. The reason I'm skeptical is that, I mean, look at climate change with many issues. Human society at large right now is not really willing to be forward-looking to the degree that is necessary to deal with a lot of these issues.
6: There's a remarkable story about, by James Sussman in today's New York Times. And actually yesterday's New York Times, July 24th, it's, uh, tit- it's titled The Bushman Who Had That Whole Work-Life Thing Figured Out. And this is a story that actually I tell this story. Uh, this is not you know, new research, uh, although the part about John Maynard Keynes I didn't know, which is which I'm grateful for and I'm going to share with you in just a moment. But uh, when I wrote Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight back in 1996, there's a whole chapter in there about ancient cultures, and I tell the story about the Kung, uh, who go by a variety of different names. They're kind of subgroups and sub-tribes and, and whatnot. And, uh, but these are the uh, the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert. Uh, they're also known as the Juhosni, uh, which is another group uh, in the northeastern part of southern africa's kalahari and uh, you know as i pointed out in last hours of ancient sunlight these people work an average of 15 hours a week a week to produce all the food and and survival needs that they that they need or want and the rest of the time they play with their kids they make music they play games with each other they dance they sing they have sex they have you know, life is good right they eat 15 hours a week so in, in and this was in um, last hours of ancient sunlight in in, in uh, crash of 2016 you know i i wrote about how time magazine back in 1967 as i recall maybe 66 67 68 it's in the book anyway um it did a did a whole story. It was a, a major story about how productivity had always followed wages from the George Washington administration up until 1968 or 67, whenever they wrote this article for Time Magazine. And so, as people became more productive, in many cases as a consequence of automation, right, the steam engine, things like that, and you know, the internal combustion engine, electricity. Um, as people became more productive, their pay went up to the point where, you know, people working in factories just making stuff were able to raise a family, put their kids through school, have a decent retirement, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was the norm in the 1960s. And so they said if productivity continues to improve at this 2 3 4 5% rate per year, going forward, by the year 20, by the year 2000, the average person in America will be working 15 hours a week the exact same pay they're getting right now, in other words, enough to raise a family. Or they'll be working a 40-hour week and they'll be making a pile of money. Now, if the CEOs, if Reagan had not changed the tax laws in the 1980s, and the CEOs had continued to only take 30 times what the average worker makes, that would actually be the case right now in the United States. If the billionaire class had never emerged, if they had simply stayed the multimillionaire class, then working people in the United States would be working 15, 20 hours a week for a paycheck that that is enough to to cover all your expenses. Or people would be making $100,000, $150,000 a year in today's dollars for jobs that back in the 68 in today's dollars paid $30,000. But that's not how it worked out. John Maynard Keynes actually identified this. Back in the 1930s, he published a book called, uh, or a paper, published uh, or titled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he predicted that, he, he said there's this thing, this economic problem. And the problem is, as productivity increases, the need for workers decreases. Right? We're producing more and more stuff with the same people. There's demand for more and more stuff, but, uh, you know, we don't need more people, so you know, as more and more stuff is being done by automation. So, what do we do about that? That's the economic problem that Keynes identified, and the solution, of course, is have people work fewer hours for the same pay, you know, for a good pay. I mean, the same annual salary, or if they want to work more hours, have them make, you know, massively more money. Now, like I said, that all got stolen from us. What Keynes predicted, what Time Magazine predicted, stolen from us by by the billionaire class as a result of Reagan's structurally changing things is ending the, the enforcement of the Sherman antitrust act is changing the executive compensation laws. So they could be paid with stock options rather than rather than paychecks. So they end up with a maximum 20% income tax rate and all the other bennies out of that. And, uh, oh, and, and, and raising the threshold of, uh, allowable and deductible executive pay. So, Uh, In this article uh, that I'm sharing with you from the New York Times, hindsight tells us that Keynes' optimism was misplaced. Capital growth and productivity are already much greater than he predicted they would be by 2030. But we're not working for 15 hours a week. So then he segues to this story about the Bushmen of the Kalahari. He says the 15-hour week week was a reality for some of the handful of remaining tribes of autonomous hunter-gatherers that... And that, in all probability, is the norm for much of the history of the modern human race, modern Homo sapiens. He said, where the economic problem holds, that we have unlimited wants and needs, the hunter-gatherers, the the, the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari, had few wants, and their few wants were easily met. So, you know, they didn't have advertising telling them that if they didn't, uh, you know, uh, put this cream on their face or something, that that everybody would hate them. I mean, you know, it's they they knew what they needed, and they go on to say highly refun- refined hunting technologies used by the, the by the modern Jujuansi hunters stretches back at least forty five and possibly as many as ninety thousand years. So we as humans have been living this way for ninety thousand years, and he he writes if the success of a civilization is judged primarily on its endurance over time, then the Jujuansi's ancestors, the Bushmen of the Kalahari render those of the ancient Egyptians, the Mayans, or even the Victorians mere novelties. And if they're a good analog for how all of our ancestors lived, then this has implication for understanding our, quote, human nature, our natures, and how we respond to challenges like automation. And uh, he said, the evidence points to the Neolithic revolution as the genesis of the economic problem. And this takes us to Daniel Quinn. Daniel Quinn writing in Ishmael that basically the place where we all started going south that led us right to destroying the planet and having eight billion people and everything else the place where we all went south was when we started doing intensive agriculture in in parts of the world where there were periods of time where no food would grow which would be you know the north and south outside north and south of the tropics of cancer and capricorn and and therefore during those times when no food is growing whoever had the food and could lock it up had absolute power and control over the over the society, and that then led to hierarchy, which then led to patriarchy, which then led to the creation of religions that justified hierarchy and patriarchy, um, which led to where we are right now. But this is not natural. So would you know Daniel Quinn would say, and the the Bushman of the Kalahari would say, this is not human nature. What is human nature? is the way that Native Americans were living in in North America, the way that Aboriginal people were living in Australia, the way that the the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari are living, in ways that never would destroy the earth. I mean, just think about it. You say, oh, you know, we've got all this technology, and we're wonderful, and it's an incredible society, and blah de blah blah but our lifespans are shrinking. Frustration with life is increasing. The Bushmen of the Kalahari, suicide is unknown. Um, cancers are exploding, heart disease, diabetes, all these things, and we're destroying our planet. I mean, we're facing the possibility, literally, of an extinction event that could remove the human species from existence. And you can draw a straight line from that all the way back to 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution. So if we're going to have the agricultural revolution, this is sort of like just like if we're going to have capitalism. Then let's at least do it in a way that that doesn't produce these massive concentrations of wealth among the people who are the hoarders and massive poverty among everybody else.
0: We are squarely in the middle of our two-in-one winter fundraiser, which is both a fundraiser to fight climate change through Climate Ride and also a membership drive to help sustain the show. And I just want to thank, as always, a few more Climate Ride donors today. Huge thanks to an anonymous donor, Leslie N., Einar, Matt S., Scott B., Aaron B., Rachel N., Victor K., Robert L., Cameron B., Sachivan I., Terry T. and Jeff T. As a reminder, Climate Ride's mission is to support climate action and active transport nonprofits fundraise. They're like a whole fundraising team for small groups who often can't afford to have a fundraising team. So it's a fun way for, you know, a small or medium-sized advocacy group or even a large one to raise thousands of dollars towards their efforts without having to manage any of the logistics themselves. So they just recruit themselves and maybe their friends and colleagues to do an awesome multi-day hike or ride and then fundraise from friends and acquaintances for their efforts. So that's Climate Ride's mission and they're always looking to expand, do more events, give people more opportunities to fundraise for causes that they care about. And that is the goal that I'm raising money for this year. So if that seems worthwhile to you and you want to support my efforts, then I hope you will donate. Similarly, if you think this show is worthwhile, you get some value. You out of it, then I hope you will take advantage of the special offer we have going for anyone who becomes a member on Patreon and donates to Climate Ride both. Besides getting all of the bonus content and ad free versions of the show that we put out for members as usual. New members who also donate $25 or more to Climate Ride can receive a t-shirt or hoodie as a thank you for supporting both causes. For all the details, just head to bestoftheleft.com and click on the huge winter fundraiser banner at the top of the homepage, or of course, there is a convenient link right in the show notes that you can probably click from the device you're using to listen to these words right now. Thanks so much in advance for your support.
1: Nick Cernick is a lecturer at King's College London and co-author of Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work. He's part of a new generation of thinkers reviving the old utopian dream of more free time. On his book's cover, in bold black letters, are the words, demand full automation, demand universal basic income, demand the future.
3: My sort of vision for a future is of a post-work world. So this would be the effort to reduce work as much as possible. And this would include things like pushing automation into areas where it doesn't necessarily exist at the moment. We also need to be having something like a universal basic income. And this universal basic income would be uh, a supplement to the welfare state. It would be applied universally, so no questions asked. It wouldn't be means tested. And it would have to be at a sufficient level that it allows people to survive on it without having to necessarily find a job. And that's a response to the threat of technological unemployment. The other aspect is um, a reduced working week. So again, if we have technology reducing the amount of work that society needs to do, the easiest response is simply to cut the working week down. So those three sort of possibilities, I think, are the sort of image of the future that I have, where we are trying to, as a society, reduce the amount of work that we have to do in order to give us more free time, uh, in order to give us the opportunity to choose exactly what we want to do, rather than being forced into a job we don't like for 40 hours or more a week. Uh, And then also sort of thinking about, well, how do we get rid of this culture that is so focused on the work ethic? That, you know, Our entire identities are often based upon our jobs. So these are the sorts of things that we need to be imagining and thinking about in order to be able to get our system in a situation where this automation can occur, but it doesn't lead to mass unemployment or lots of precarious work and lots of low-wage work.
1: Now, some people would say that's utopian, and that's, that's often used in a disparaging way. Like, you know, that's not realistic, it's never going to (laughs) happen. So um, how do you respond to that charge?
3: I do think this image is utopian, but I don't think it's utopian in a sort of abstract sense. So there's uh, a distinction we can make between a sort of concrete utopia and an abstract utopia. Uh, And an abstract utopia is one which is completely unrelated to the changes going on in the world at the time and sort of what exists at the moment. Uh, It's just something which is a pure product of our imagination. On the other hand, we have a concrete utopia, which is taking into account how the world is changing, what is going on. Uh, And I think that the sort of post-work world is utopian in that sense. I think it's something which presently at this moment seems beyond the realm of the possible. But of course, the realm of the possible is not something which is static, it's something which changes over time. Uh, you know, at one point, universal health care was deemed to be impossible. The welfare state was deemed to be impossible. Uh, women's voting rights was deemed to be impossible. All of this stuff historically has been seen as, you know, utopian, and eventually becomes just the normal state of affairs. Now, I think the same thing can happen with the post-work world. And I think As technology starts changing our economies, increasingly, we're going to have to be using these sorts of ideas, these utopian images, to guide where we're headed.
1: There's a lot of fear about the implementation of technology and, you know, the dystopian view that it's going to really destroy jobs. And yet you say, bring it on and uh, demand full automation. Why do you have to demand it? Isn't it happening?
3: Yeah. uh, So it's it's demanding it sort of points to a couple of different things. Capitalism doesn't automate everything. Capitalism automates what it finds profitable. And a lot of work that we find to be the worst work and, you know, drudgery, capitalism doesn't automate simply because it's not cost effective for them to do so. There's an interesting sort of phenomenon going on in in a lot of advanced countries right now where productivity growth is not growing uh, or is growing at a very slow rate. And productivity growth is effectively our measure of how much automation is going on. So we would expect that if there was a lot of automation going on, we would see very high levels of productivity growth, but we're just not seeing that. Now, part of the reason why is because wages have been stagnant since about the 1970s. The average person in the US and Canada and the UK only makes the same amount as what they made in the 1970s. So this is effectively means that there is no wage pressures for automation. So you can imagine if you're running a business, if, if wages start going up, suddenly those expensive machines over there start to look a bit cheaper. Uh, and effectively, as wages go up, you're more likely to start purchasing machines, purchasing automation, and increasing productivity. So I think that if we start thinking about how do we increase minimum wage, How do we increase the strength of unions? How do we increase the strength of workers? We'll start to see more automation. We'll start to see a more advanced economy, higher productivity growth, higher economic growth. And then we'll have to also think about the sort of post work turn as well.
1: The fight to raise the minimum wage has met with some success in Canada. Both Ontario and Alberta plan to increase it to $15 an hour. But the announcements have been met with veiled threats from business owners who've claimed that the increase will lead to layoffs, automation, or outsourcing.
3: One of the the big examples recently has been the fight for 15 in America. Uh, So looking for a $15 minimum wage in fast food services. And McDonald's and other companies have basically replied and said, well, if we have to pay our workers that much money, we'll just automate them away. And there's a sense in which today, under this current system, those people losing jobs is a bad thing. But of course, we want to build a system where that's not a bad thing, where actually this means that those people are no longer doing what are often terrible, hot, sweaty, you know, very frustrating and and annoying jobs. They no longer have to do them. That, to me, I think would be a great thing. But we have to build up the social system that enables that to be a good thing.
7: should be focusing on, I think, is the people that we need in a service economy to do really important jobs for improving our our quality of life. One is very well-trained people to work with small children early childhood nurturing and education we know now is really, really important. And yet we are not paying a a living wage to people who take care of children in uh, daycare centers and in early childhood education. Uh, We should find a way to professionalize those jobs, recruit people who have had more Training and who can earn higher wages. And there are lots of other examples of that in healthcare, uh, in care for the elderly. We have an awful lot of people now, uh, who are uh, living for a very long time and many of whom need care. And they don't just need warehousing in a nursing home. They need interesting things to do and be part of and a caring atmosphere. And that takes people with skill. And it takes people that are paid enough. And we haven't figured out how to make these human service jobs into really important parts of our economy that are well compensated. That's a big challenge.
8: One of my ethical precepts is that everybody should uh, be carried along, broadly speaking. In other words, if we're rich, uh, we don't have to have people suffer. That's
9: Jeff Sachs. He's one of the most decorated economists of the past half century.
6: He's worked with the United Nations, with the Vatican, with countries all over the world, mostly on fighting poverty. And the fact that we can't figure that out,
8: that, to my mind, is really a, a failing of our moral insight, not a failing of uh, kind of economic technique, per se. If uh, jobs are going away, we should organize society to help enjoy creative and leisure time, not, by the way, cling to having to have a 40 hour work week. Now, does that mean Sachs is in favor of a universal basic income? Well, it's funny. I am uh, in favor of uh, universal basic dignity, universal basic needs, universal healthcare, universal education. The pure cash transfer approach, I find a little naive, actually, uh, though I, I can see some role for it. I think that the way we meet basic needs, to an important extent, should, should not be cash transfers, but should be by helping everybody to be incorporated into the decent systems which give people their health, their education and their dignity.
5: So what would Sachs do if we made him chief economist of Earth 2.0?
8: You don't want to really create Earth 2.0 in the way that uh, you've stated, because we're likely to make a disaster that way. But what I think is extremely important is to have a historical and a moral view. And a historical view says that societies change. They mainly change, in my opinion, because of uh, technological changes. Institutions change as technologies change. We do things differently. We live our lives differently. Uh, Instead of working in the fields, we uh, work in factories. Instead of working in factories, the robots work in factories. We work in services. So that's uh, where history comes in. And then values come in by saying that we don't just view ourselves, in my opinion, as uh, an open, unguided, evolutionary process— There are some parts of economics, like Austrian economics, will say, well, an economic system is just an open, self-organizing, evolving system, full stop. But I think that that's where the moral framework comes in to ask, as technology changes, as uh, we can do things differently or do, in fact, do things differently, how should we adjust as a social animal living in a society for a decent, ethical world in which uh, we should all be striving to be good people to that end Sachs argues there are some basic economic considerations to think about one is we're just phenomenally rich it's unbelievable and we therefore have solved in the macro average sense what john maynard keynes called the quote economic problem meaning We don't need extreme poverty. We don't need suffering from deprivation anywhere in our world. It wouldn't take uh, almost lifting a finger to make sure that everybody has access to basic health and education in this world because we're so good, we're so rich, our technologies are so smart. So that's one compelling fact for me, which is that things like nearly 6 million kids under the age of 5 dying each year because they don't get the vaccine or they don't get the antibiotic is just absurd and I would say obscene.
9: So you are known for, for doing work organizing domestic workers, for for running an organization that is trying to think about how to change elder care in this country. And when I looked at your Twitter bio preparing for this interview, I noticed that it said futurist. And I thought, huh, that, that, that's interesting. I wonder why she calls herself a futurist. And then we were talking before our, our conversation here, and you were saying to me that these are going to be the single biggest job categories in the country if projections hold true. Can you talk a little bit about the scale of where these professions are going, how many people were talking about what role they play uh, as a labor portion of the American economy?
10: Absolutely. One of the things that's less visible in everyday life in this country is, is a massive demographic shift that's underway. And it's Not the demographic shift that we mostly hear about in particularly the political news cycle, which is about the racial demographic shift, but layered on top of the racial demographic shift is this generational demographic shift where the baby boom generation is starting to turn 65 at a rate of a person every eight seconds. Every day, 10,000 people turn 65. And then because of advances in healthcare and technology, people are living longer than ever before, like longer than we ever could have imagined when we put our safety net in place. So we're about to have the largest older population we've ever had and really nothing in place to support people to live well as they live longer, which to me has a lot to do with care. And so that push is really driving a huge increase in the number of elder care jobs that are needed, particularly home care, as more and more people want to age at home and in their communities. So home care is now actually the fastest growing occupation in our entire workforce, the whole workforce, the fastest growing. And it's anticipated to grow at five times the rate of any other workforce. And a lot of the economists are projecting that by the year 2030, if you take child care and elder care jobs combined, It's going to be the single largest occupation. To me, it's both a huge challenge and an opportunity. The challenge for me is that we're looking at jobs where, for example, the home care workforce, the annual median income for home care workers, $13,000 per year. So people are working incredibly hard. These are the people that we're counting on to take care of the people who cared for us, like my grandmother. and. They can't take care of their own families on this income, right? So it's completely unsustainable. The opportunity is that this is going to be one of the jobs that will anchor us in the future. It will anchor the economy and it will anchor and make, make it possible for you and I to go to work knowing our loved ones are in good hands. And if we invest in these jobs, it could be really revolutionary for the rest of the economy.
9: I want to tell you a story here because this hits to one of these wounds that I carry. Um, all reporters mm-hmm. have these stories they've done where they're reported on something and it just it, it went the wrong way. Um, and, and this is one of mine. I did a piece on a Medicare pilot program a number of years back called Health Quality Partners. I, I found out about them because one of the folks I know who I trust most in healthcare called me and he said, there is this Medicare pilot program and they are getting better results than anything else anyone does. And Medicare is about to shut them down. And you have to go look at this. So they were in in, in Pennsylvania, and I went and looked at them. And they were a pilot program that was focusing on care for the absolute sickest people in Medicare. People who did not have a lot of money, who had a lot of comorbidity. They had many, many, many problems stacked on top of each other. You know, early-stage dementia mixed with terrible hypertension, mixed with this and that and the other thing.
7: Mm. And
9: they were getting these extraordinarily highly, highly validated results and the way they were doing it was they were ju- I mean they were just having people check up on the folks in the program all of the time. I mean it's <laughs> more than that there was great management in the program, great people in the program, they were very evidence based, but at the core of it they were pushing care to these people and really trying to do these continuous holistic assessments in their home. Did there appear to be risks for falling or tripping? You know, was that working? What was happening with their partner, their spouse? Was their partner or spouse able to understand what was going on with with their loved one's medications? I mean, it was really the most basic stuff. And, and it was working. And the program got shut down, ultimately. My article got it a reprieve. It got another 18 months, and then it got shut down. And mm. I remember we, we titled the piece, if this was a pill, you would pay anything to get it. Because mm. there's just absolutely no doubt that if there had been a terribly invasive surgery, That cost exactly as much money or twice as much money or three times as much money, but showed half the results. Medicare would be paying for it for everyone. And we just seem to have in our healthcare system broadly, but but particularly in Medicare, no real sense of how to pay for something that is not an in-hospital or in a pill bottle medical intervention. And it's strange because no, you don't. There's no one you talk to in the healthcare system where that is their view of how health works. Nobody views that, views it that way. But the way the payment is structured, the way the program is structured, what, what you said at the beginning of of your comment to me, that we don't know how to get beyond the medicalization of people's health, it, it's really, really profoundly true. And it's true even when we're sitting there staring. Better ways to do it in the face. And it's one of these things where I've never been able to come up with an answer of how we can have this system where everybody knows what we're doing is wrong and nobody quite seems able to figure out a different way.
10: Mm. Yeah, we've totally lost the care part of healthcare. care.
7: Mm-hmm.
10: I think that's absolutely right. And when I think about the work that home care mm. workers do every single day, at its best, What it really fundamentally comes down to is upholding the human dignity of another person, that what you're doing every single day is connecting with the human being that is in your care and you're doing everything necessary so that that person can have a dignified quality of life for as long as possible. That's actually very hard work. (laughs) and we have not figured out a way to value it. But the trick is that in the 21st century, when that is becoming such a huge share of the work that's needed in order for this economy and our families to function properly, we have to figure out a way to value it. And I think that 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 is the future. When we can figure out how we revalue the care part of our health, the health of our families, the health of our economy, that's when we're actually going to be on to the fundamentals of a sustainable society.
9: I'd like to talk about that word dignity for a minute, because it, it seems to me to be a very widely held again and completely undervalued part of our system, of our lives, of our of our vision here. Uh Don Berwick who used to be, who was for a period of time, CMS administrator, um he used to, he had this speech that was very famous where he said that the thing he was afraid of about getting sick wasn't the getting sick part, and it wasn't the part where he had treatments and surgeries and 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 medications. It was a part where he lost his own humanity, where he got treated mm-hmm. as a patient, where he got treated as a problem to be solved. And I think we all understand for ourselves, for for our loved ones, for the people around us. That of the things you might value as you get older, of at any point in your life, really, but, but in this conversation as you get older, holding on to your dignity to some degree of your autonomy is really high. And, and yet that's, that's another right. thing that we don't in any way measure, we don't reimburse mm-hmm. for. We will pay a drug company or a medical device company or a hospital, anything for a treatment that in any way shows any kind of improvement on sort of narrowly understood health outcomes, or even frankly half the time doesn't, uh, but for but anything that shows any kind of medicalized improvement, right? If you can show that this reduces chronic pain by seven percent, like you get that that gets reimbursed, and if you can show that this way of delivering care improves people's feeling of dignity and control over their own life. By 50%, by 75%, we have, it doesn't even exist. There's no way to even have the conversation. How do you change that? Because this is another one of these places where I don't think anybody doesn't want it to change. Just nobody's changed it.
10: So this the way our country thinks about aging and dying and this kind of culture, this dominant culture of, Kind of fear of death and dying and then kind of an association of aging with disability, decline, frailty. I think that there's a way in which that prevents us from having a really healthy approach to people's agency and dignity throughout every stage of life. So for example, if you, if you think about the fact that Living longer is actually longer to love, to learn, to teach, to contribute. I mean, it, living longer is more time to do all the things that make life worth living if we have the right supports in place. If we could actually think about aging and preparing for aging and end of life in a way that was about what do we need to live well and have agency and dignity at every stage of life, and how do we value the supports and the people that will make that possible, the work that will make that possible, the systems that will make that possible, the policies, the infrastructure. We almost have to really kind of reorient our whole attitude around the later years of life. And if we're able to do that, so much human potential can be unlocked.
9: You have in this country a political coalition centered around altered Americans that has become extremely anti-immigrant. And yet there is no group, and I don't in any way want to be glib about this, that arguably benefits as much from having a healthy immigrant workforce than older Americans. I mean, as I look at the numbers of of what is coming of where we are now, it seems to me that the alternative to having quite a few immigrants in this country is nursing homes. It's fewer and fewer people being able to age and live out their final years and 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 months at home. And mm-hmm. yet there doesn't seem to me to be any sense of that connection of the benefit to both sides, that that there is some kind of cultural enmity that is overwhelming what is a very deep need in it, as you put it, interdependency.
10: hmm It's true. It it really is. I think if we can start to shine a light on this reality, I think it could be one of the things that helps to change the conversation about immigration. Um, in some ways, the state of Arizona is a canary in the mine for us. Um, we often talk about the changing demographics in terms of race but when you layer on top of it the changing demographics generationally you actually see that the white the older population is significantly whiter and the younger population is significantly more diverse and of color and arizona is the state in the country that is the most racially and generationally polarized of any state in the country meaning the most white people over the age of sixty-five, and the most young people of color under the age of eighteen, and it's no accident in that context of racial and general generational polarization that Arizona was the birthplace of the notorious anti-immigrant legislation SB ten seventy, the place where Sheriff Joe Arpaio rose to power, um, who you know basically was indicted for. Um, torturing immigrants in detention and the facilities that he ran, and racial profiling in Arizona, also the first and only pardon of the Trump administration. Right. The, in some ways, we are. Arizona is helping us forecast if we don't find a way to put forward a vision of the future of this country that really unites us across race, class, and generation where everyone can see their future and their interests inside of that vision. We do run the risk of increasing levels of racial and generational polarization, which is a really toxic breeding ground for hateful policy and hateful leadership. And so I think there's a ton at stake here and a way that talking about care and caregiving can bring us together in the most important and urgent context for that kind of a unifying vision.
3: We've just heard
0: clips today starting with ideas discussing the future of work in a world of artificial intelligence. David Packman explored whether robots are helping to widen the wealth gap. Tom Hartman explained why a 15 hour work week would help save the planet. Ideas spoke with Nick Cernick, a strong advocate for an automated workforce as long as the right social structures are in place to get ready for it. Freakonomics Radio looked at the future of work and economics if the focus of our efforts is redirected towards caring for everyone's well-being. And finally, we just heard Ezra Klein interviewing Ajin Poo about the fastest-growing and one of the most important work sectors for the future – Caretakers. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you.
11: Hey Jay, this is Dallas in Jacksonville, Florida. I just had a quick comment on your episode on monopolies, Google, etc., and I was reminded of an anecdote that Google's motto. Uh, until recently then a few years I think used to be don't be evil which you know is tongue-in-cheek and I understand why they said that but what it made me think of is that clearly Sergey Brin and the guys over there running the place at Google realized at some level the extreme power that they hold in their position as many of your clips in that episode, outline and it got me thinking and maybe future callers might be able to have an answer for this or maybe you have thoughts on this what changed that made google decide that that wasn't the way they needed to be thinking anymore i will hang up and leave my thoughts to everybody else thanks for what you do talk to you next time
12: Hey Jay, it's Alan, your Patreon member from Connecticut calling in. Congratulations on the Patreon success. It's always nice to see democracy in action or, or voices being heard, so congratulations on that. Um, I'm glad that worked out. Listening to the last uh, episode, the Money in Politics one that was posted, uh, got me to thinking along with the whole Patreon thing. You know, I do a lot of calls to senators and Congress and, and so forth do and I don't know the answer to this. Do they keep track? I mean, I know they keep track of their donors and so forth, and we've talked about that in, and before. But am I more likely to get a response or to have influence if I am listed as a donor? And is there, um, you know, are they paying attention to the dollar fingers that are donated, uh, or if it's donated anonymously, kind of thing, like? How does all that work? I don't understand and and know enough to know the background side of that. Are they paying attention to just the high donors? Are they looking and comparing who they're getting their calls from with donor lists? Um, Maybe somebody out there knows the answer to that, and that, that would be very interesting to know. So thanks. Have happy holidays for whatever you celebrate, and stay awesome.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, uh, quickly, in response to Alan... I have certainly never heard of campaign donations being directly linked with phone calls, especially when you're calling on an issue and, you know, if if the office is receiving a whole bunch of phone calls and some intern is just answering and sort of tallying people's opinions, probably uh, they are not organized enough to link your phone call with a donation you've made, but that only goes for the lower levels. Of course. Of course, big donors, uh, well, first of all, they probably don't have to talk to the intern. And secondly, yes, of course, their opinions get noted more highly than people who, you know, if you, if you donate a couple thousand dollars to a campaign, you, you're going to get someone's attention more than if you chip in five. I say five because the the idea that Alan is reminding me of is sometimes people will donate to campaigns or parties who they don't necessarily support, just so they can sort of get that insider look at like what sort of emails do I start to receive if they think I'm a strong supporter willing to give money? And pretty interesting things happen. Tom Hartman comes to mind as a radio personality who always, I mean, you know, he has said in the past that he regularly donates, uh, you know, five bucks a year or something like that to the Republican Party and and you know maybe to other similar organizations so that he can get on their special donor email list and see what sort of nonsensical stuff that they send to him so he can report on it. So so that certainly happens and is interesting. Uh, so you know, there are reasons to donate to a politician or a cause like that to sort of get on the inside, but I'm not sure if it works just with uh, phone calls and trying to get your opinion across. A- interesting thought, though, if anyone else has any thoughts on that. I, uh, like Alan, would love to hear more details Secondly today, a quick update on our winter fundraiser. As you are probably aware, we just finished the holidays, and we basically had a choice. We could dive in with every other organization on the planet, pushing our end-of-year fundraising, or we could take the holiday vacation and spend time with our families, but we really couldn't manage to do both. Time wouldn't allow. Uh, So we we took a vacation and uh, did not push hard for that end-of-year fundraising. Uh, You know, we wanted to have the winter fundraiser take place, at least uh, partly during December, so that if you wanted to take advantage of, you know, tax deductions and that sort of thing at the end of the year, then you certainly had that opportunity. But, you know, we're we're not professional fundraisers. We're we're podcasters. So I I did not have it in me to do that big, strong end-of-year push, for better or worse. I'm sure worse. I'm, I'm aware. But now... We are in the home homestretch. Uh, we've decided that the end of January is going to be the end of the fundraiser. We have no doubt that we can finish strong and hit our goal. Right now, we're at about 25% of the $5,000 we're trying to raise for a climate ride. That should not cause any panic for anyone. People love deadlines. They love to get in right at the end, uh, right before the deadline. And up until this point, we hadn't had one. And, you know, a listener asked, hey, hey, uh, when is that deadline for that fundraiser, by the way? I I didn't hear you mention one. And that's true. I didn't. I I wasn't sure how long it would last. But now we've decided. The end of January, we're cutting you off. So uh, let's raise another about $3,500 to Climate Ride. And if you want to sign up as a member at the same time, of course, that helps us out enormously. And besides all the regular, uh, you know, ad-free versions of the show and things like that, you get the bonus content. And I got to say, we've had some pretty good bonus content recently. We've had some interesting conversations that we were laying out over the holidays. You know, not getting into deep, like, policy stuff, but trying to get a little bit philosophical, keeping it uh, keeping it both sort of light and heavy at the same time to finish out the year. And, and I think, I think my favorite was uh, trying to use the concept of standing in line to explain society as a whole. I, you'll just have to listen to understand what I'm talking about, but I I think, I think it resonates. I, I think it lands well. So uh, of course, all members have access to that. So if you sign up as a member and donate to Climate Ride at the same time, then you get free apparel as a thank you gift, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard me say it before. So don't be one of those who procrastinates all the way to the end of the month and gets your donation in right under the wire, giving me a heart attack, making me think we're not going to make it. We're going to make it, but let's get those donations coming in all throughout the month. So, thanks again to everyone who's already donated, and to everyone who will. Now, just real quick before I go, don't forget that if you are not using the right credit card, you could be missing out on $300 a year in rewards. That's why there's Birch, the app that helps you get the most out of your cards by actively tracking their rewards programs and showing you which ones to use before you buy. Download Birch, B-I-R-C-H, in the App Store, and sign up for free today. Now keep those comments coming in on any topic number to dial, as always, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.